here and Are we recording? Yes. Okay. Okay, so I'll count you in. So we'll do one, two, three. So, Robin, thank you so much for joining me for this special episode of Carolyn Talks for TIFF 2020. Um, so we're going to get into one of your favorite films and also what you've been doing for TIFF. But before we get into all of that, could you introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah. Hello, thanks for having me, Carolyn. Um, my name is Robin Citizen. I'm the Senior Manager of Festival Programming at TIFF, and this is my first year in this role. Mm, yes, and so as you said, you are a <clears throat> sorry festival manager, so it's your first year, and it just happened to be the year when everything got thrown in, up <laughs> into massive upheaval, no thanks in part to COVID. And so for you, what was the biggest adjustment you had to make um, going in from what you were expecting it would be from a regular festival to then realizing, oh, wait, we got to do something completely different than what we were planning. What was it like for you um, just getting a handle on the whole situation? It was wild because I was in, only in the office for three weeks before mm -hmm. everybody started working from home. So I was still, there was still onboarding to be done and the kind of definition of what my position was supposed to be like was still being worked out because yeah. I think the person who had this role before me was doing like two different jobs and so you know like we were trying to figure out who in the department would do what and so but then when COVID hit at first we were like oh it's just going to be two weeks and then we're going to be back in the office doing the regular festival but very quickly we realized that we were um out for the long haul. So then it was just a matter of, you know, setting up Zooms, figuring out how to do the workflow remotely in a way that would still allow us to put on this festival. And initially we thought, oh, we'd be doing like 150 films. And then it went down to 100. And then we realized when we had to do this hybrid model, this like on-site and then digital model, we really only had the resources for 50 films because anything more than that we couldn't devote our full attention and we felt like the films wouldn't get the um promotion and the presentation that they deserved so with 50 films we were able to like reach out to every filmmaker and every company and really kind of give them a concierge type festival experience almost mm, and how did that change your approach to selecting the films because as you said you would have had um, I think you said 150 mm -hmm. before, but now you it was whittled down to 50. And so, like, how did that change your approach to selecting the film? Seeing that you only you had a smaller pool to um a smaller selection to 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 have. It was really hard. I mean, we had to leave a lot of really great films, you know, on the table that we other in in, in a normal year we would have had room for and we would mm. have definitely invited. Um, and then you're trying to you know, out of that pool of films that make the programmer shortlist, you're trying to figure out, okay, what's a good mix of films? Because Cameron really wanted it to be a cohesive selection and not mm. be program-based. And so we had to figure out which films worked best together to make like an overall um, program for the entire festival and not just isolated programs that do different things. So it was really, really tough. And getting back to the to the companies and the film teams and being like, you know, any other year you would have been, you would have been right in there. But this year we, we just couldn't accommodate it. Hmm. 
and because this as you said because this, the pool is smaller and as you said you you guys you you had to look at a way of selecting the films to make them i guess almost relatable to each other um were you are you speaking like thematically for the films and or or do you mean in a different way no because we never go into it with like themes you know like it's just what but but there is a kind of what film works you know what Mm -hmm. film works with this year like what film works with this cultural moment Mm -hmm. what film works um with each other so it's kind of a hard thing to explain but but Cameron definitely had a vision and him and Diana and the other programmers came together on it but um they had to program films that made sense together even though they were quite different in content so Hmm. I understand because, if, for instance, if there would have been a film about um, a quarantine <laughs> that was submitted, you would you, you would have had to think two, three, four times about it and say, "Is this really what we want to show to audiences at this particular time?" And at this particular time, because like, even right now, there there's a film. I think it's it with Anne Hathaway that's being made about love, basically in the time of quarantine. And people are like, "No, we're still in sad. quarantine. Why are you doing this?" Like. You can give us like four or five years, maybe down the road, but like, why are you making a disaster film while we are still in the disaster? It's kind of tacky and tactless. So uh-huh. I, I understand what you mean. And also, um, and were there any films that you personally were in charge of selecting and, and submitting first and then selecting to be a part of the final, um, the final pool of films? Well, this year, because it, it was 50 films, like, I mean, our usual programmers had their slots, but they were reduced slots. Mm-hmm. And, and Cameron really did have the final say. Um, uh, so I didn't have any slots of my own, but I was doing the, the pre-screening and so helping make the kind of consensus programming decisions. Um, and I mean, Cameron wants to, is very attentive to um, what people suggest. And, and so a lot of those films end up, ended up getting in anyway. Um, but I, I think all of the films I was really writing for did get in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, cause other programmers also like them. Um, but there was, there was one that didn't, I can't even say what it is, but there's one that didn't, when it finally comes out, I will, I will be on social media. Like I love this film. When I saw it. <laughs> <laughs> and were, there, were there any particular that you, that you love that did make it into the, to, to the final group? That did? Yeah. Yeah. So my two films and I, and keep in mind, I haven't seen all the films either. Um, but the two films I really connected with were pieces of a woman by mm-hmm. Cornell Mondrusco and, um, 40 years a prisoner by Tommy Oliver. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought they were both really powerful in their, in their own ways and pieces of a woman as a mother really, really got to me. Um, Vanessa Kirby, is the star of that film and she just won best actress at Venice. Um, I think it's going to do really well. And 40 years of prisoner is about the move collective, Mm -hmm. um, which is a really undertold story. And Tommy Oliver tells it really well. Right. So that is the perfect segue to, for us to discuss the film, because that's the main film we're going to discuss today. And I've seen the film 40 years, uh, a prisoner by Tommy Oliver. And it's about this, this, this young man, about, He's always even long because you know black don't crack. Um, <laughs> my, my Africa Junior, who has for for the last forty years worked tirelessly, as we would say, to have his parents released from prison. His mother, um, what is I'm looking for? I have their names here in my notes and my eyes are in eclipse. 
I think it's Mike Sr. and Debbie. Yes, Debbie is his mom's name, and his uh-huh. dad is Mike Sr. because he's Mike Jr. And they were imprisoned um, by the Philadelphia judicial system for 30-plus years. And, and the, the, the maximum with them and eight other members of MOVE in 1979, because by the end of the trial, it was 1979, because I think um, in the documentary it says that it was one of the longest trials in, at that, in history at that point in time. And they were sentenced by this judge to 30 to 100 years each. Um, and this was, a, this was following um, a shootout by involving Philadelphia police and also MOVE members where a cop was shot and it has yet to be determined if he was actually shot by the MOVE members or if he was shot by friendly fire. And considering the evidence, he was probably shot by a fellow cop. But he, the judge sentenced them to 30 to 100 years in prison and Mike was born in Mike himself was born in prison and he learned who his parents were as a young child because he was raised by other family members and the I, I think what was beautiful for me is how we is how as a as an individual Mike it doesn't have that you know that whole story if this was a tv show it would have been like he would have grown up like you know in a broken, you know what I mean? Like a, in a broken uh-huh. home and it was a, in where he's like tormented and like angry yeah. all the time. And that's not who this person is. That's not who the Mike that we see is. He's a very upbeat person and he has a, he had a really good relationship with his parents, even though the uh-huh. only time he could see them was while they were in prison. And I thought to me, that was one of the most, um, I think beautiful aspects of the film. And so we'll get more into that. But for you, um, when you first saw the film, what was your first initial reaction to it? Whether it would have been screening during TIFF or while you were screening it for, for, for selection. So my, I feel like my reaction was immediate, like it immediately resonated with me. And my introduction to the move story happened when I was an undergrad in college. And um, I was in Philadelphia for the big RNC, like the, Republican National Convention protest in 2001, mm. the lead up to um, the big WTO protest. And so I was there for that protest, but also a Mumia Abu Jamal protest. And so he was um, involved in MOVE and, and his trial um, came much later than that. So I knew about like the 1985 firebombing um, that happened and, the, and MOVE was connected with that. And we actually dropped a like a bomb on a residential neighborhood street um, in 1985 just to get to the MOVE collective. But I knew I knew much less about what had happened in the late 70s. And so I, I just knew the bare details. But when I was watching it, it Oliver, Tommy Oliver has got so much access to the people involved in this story because it's not just like his parents or the other people have moved but I mean police officers that were involved at the time you know he has all this archival footage of Frank Rizzo who was this kind of notoriously racist um you know head of the city and he at one point you feel like he's about to get a confession. <laughs> he's mm-hmm. Like he's about to actually, you know, get one of these people that were involved um, to incriminate themselves. I mean, it, it, it almost happens. And so I was in awe of how he could talk to all the people in the community and, and, you know, have them tell him their story. And as I said, this is a really underreported on chapter of like civil rights and black history. So I was really excited that, the entire story was being told 
Yes, no, for sure. And because the thing is, is like growing up in Barbados, like we, like you know, like the a large part, a, a large part of our society is, um, I guess you could say, founded on Black liberation and like you know the Black Panther movement and the civil rights era. But I, but there's also the the Rastafarianism religion is also um, very much a part part of our culture. And part of that is I grew up hearing about John Africa. And I didn't know know who John Africa was. I just had this abstract knowledge that this there there was this person. And while they while the move are the move organization isn't Rastafarianism as a as a as a religion, they do have similar um they do have similar edicts and, and similar philosophies, which is like you know living living off the land, like having their hair natural and growing out in locks, and you know having their children be free and to do what they what they want and and like you know looking after and looking after nature and animals mm-hmm. and not being necessarily entrenched in modernization and 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 relying on government on not necessarily government but I want to say I'm um, on particular we're having the government control everything they do and when so when I was watching the documentary it really clicked for me it was like okay so this is the John Africa I heard about growing up and it makes sense to me now because also a lot of my dad's friends were um, living in the in the states during this era too, and a lot of them went to school and to university in the states in this era. And you know, because you know, Barbados has a lot of expats, people who have traveled yeah. to to England and to North and to North America to study. And so, a lot of my, my I, I would hear my dad and his friends talking about these events and talking about these people, but I just didn't have a full um, understanding of everything. So when I watched the documentary, a lot of things clicked into place for me, mm-hmm. and also because like. Even back home, like in university, like we we like we're we're fairly. I think the thing with the Caribbean is we're fairly open with discussing politics and discuss, discussing certain topics. So like, even while I worked at a university in the library, I would see books and I would sometimes randomly read books while I was like shoving, shoving them. I would read like a few chapters and then shove a book and that kind of stuff. So like I have kind of like this, um, this weirdly large knowledge base but still kind of empty because I don't have the full grasp I don't have a full grasp of everything so right. it's like these kind of situations were familiar because I had heard about Frank Rizzo and I had heard that he was extremely racist and horrible but then watching the documentary and seeing the kind of vitriol he had and the kind of things that he said like just said on on TV on national on news without any kind of filter it was like, yeah, no, this man was absolute trash, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, so, so I, and so like you, and you mentioned how Tommy was able to get one of them this close to actually confessing, admitting that they were wrong. And so it was close. like, that's, and I thought that was brilliant because there was also a moment where they talk about the, the gun. I think, I don't know if it's the same part you're talking about where they talked about the guns where he said the guns were pristine. Like this is supposed to be a gun that these are this whole load of guns that were in this basement that were flood that was flooded by water that had smoke and soot and everything in it and they brought them out and they had them on the news and there's nothing on them they're absolutely clean and this guy I think he was a cop and he and he he mentions it but I don't know if he's consciously aware of what he said and it was like look how this man just admit that this was a setup yeah. <laughs> right and then it, yeah as I thought it was brilliant yeah no it was. <laughs> I don't like again I don't actually know how we did it I guess when people are in the middle of telling their story sometimes they don't think about like the full implications of what they're saying but uh that what that police officer said also what some of the community members said was mm-hmm. really fascinating because I just assumed that the white community members were kind of the ones you know telling on the um collective and like going to the police but quite a lot of them were like 
yeah, it's a little weird, but it's fine. They're like, they're peaceful. Mm. You know, they're not bothering us. And a lot of them expressed that they were also quite um, concerned and and felt like the police were really overreacting to the Mm -hmm. situation. And so um, that was complete news to me. But I think the reason why we don't hear more about MOVE and more about John Africa is they were unlike a lot of civil rights organizations, they weren't like policy oriented. They weren't trying to change like the federal policies mm. about race or anything, but they were kind of eco liberation slash like, like you were saying about the, the Rastafarian connection and like vegan and they were very anti-technology. Um, and so it didn't really fit into this mold of like the other civil rights organizations. And I have read some other things about that's why some organizations didn't necessarily come to moves um, yeah. rescue right because they were also kind of confused about what it stood for and the collective and their tactics and so like they didn't rally to their side right away so yeah that that part those two points that you just made stood out to me like the one with the white um neighbors where a lot of them were saying like you said a lot of them were like yeah they might be a little weird but like the police are the ones who are in the wrong here and a part of i think a part of that has to do with how this was at the time where, where hippie culture was very big in America, so for them, they were like they 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 were familiar with the whole eating from the land, you know, free love. I, even though I'm not just saying that the move moment move moment that's what I mean movement was about free love. It was more like I think a lot of them were in monogamous relationships because it wasn't said otherwise. But like for for I think the white community there, like they've seen this because like you had like the Beatles and then you had like groups like the Mamas and the Papas and whatever, and you had like rock and roll and we're in white rock and roll where it was all about you know resisting the man right so this that would have been a movement too but the thing that you mentioned like i noticed no black organizations came to the i I didn't hear any mention of the naacp i didn't hear any mentions of any other black organizations coming or women's rights organizations coming coming to their aid and because they had to rely on on i think the first lawyer they had was one that was appointed to them by the by the court because of a court case that they had going on. And then the, another one was, a, I think, a lawyer that I think volunteered his time. And they had two other black lawyers, but they didn't have any organizational backing. They only had themselves and people like grassroots organization, which is where a lot of this starts from. So I thought it was really interesting and also disappointing that they did not have support from the black community because like, even if they didn't fully, fully understand or agree with their philosophy there's still black people being targeted by the police like the police were using the same tactics that were used in the 1950s and the 1960s in the civil rights era right and it was like where is the help black people so just because (laughs) and this is something that happens now where like people are only help each help other black people if they think that the ideologies fit yeah right yeah and it's that's unfortunate because i mean i know i have conversations with my with my parents who, you know, my dad took part in some of the civil rights uh, protests when he was in school too, but he is really baffled at the new mode of organizing, like with Mm -hmm. Black Lives Matter. He doesn't understand it because it was very much like in the sixties, it was the charismatic male figure that was leading a lot of these civil rights organizations. Even if, you know, there were plenty of women doing the work kind of beyond that figure, that's who was associated with the movement. And so there's not a single person associated mm. with something like Black Lives Matter. And so how it's being organized is kind of like a mystery. So I, I feel like perhaps uh, civil rights groups from the 60s were looking at MOVE like in the late 70s and not really understanding. And there was a disjuncture there. So I hope we don't repeat 
those mistakes. Um, I think we're doing a little bit better now. But unfortunately, what does seem really familiar is, I mean, hearing Frank Rizzo talk was shocking. But man, it seems pretty familiar to the way that U.S. politicians are starting to talk about race again. Mm. So knowing that we're we've come full circle 40 years later, um, back to the same public statements of, of racism is really disheartening. I, I, I know because like you can't help but compare him to someone like Trump and, mm-hmm. and to the GOP and like the ineffectiveness of politicians. Because again, with the move moment and everything that happened, no politicians came to their aid. I was like, where is Al Sharpton? <laughs> you know what I mean? Those kind of figures, those kind of public figures that like that were always on TV. I'm like, where where's the Jesse? Uh, what's the guy? Oh my gosh, the other one, the one with the curly hair, Jesse. Um, Jesse Jackson. Jesse Jackson. I was like, yeah, Jesse they're Jackson? everywhere. <laughs> but they, they were everywhere, but there. And exactly. I was like, uh, but so like, but as you said, like even now there there isn't any particular one person to pinpoint. And I'm and I'm wondering if the reason for this is because we have seen how public figures when you have one person speaking on behalf of the entire community targeted attacked and killed and i'm wondering if the reason we don't have that now is because for the same thing because if now it's more dangerous to put yourself as a figurehead because you have uh, you have militias now it's like to me i think it's like the the police and it's more organized like what happened in portland and in yeah. new york and all those things like if you ha- and even in ferguson if you go back to ferguson like I, there are people who were there that have been come up missing or yeah. killed mysteriously killed so i think there is like because there are people organizing the marches that are still going on the protests and everything is still going on but they're saying, I'm not going to be the figurehead because I still fear for my life and I have to look after my family, which is perfectly understandable because look at who's look at who's the president now. He has no problems painting a target, especially using social media, to paint a target on someone's back and turn like the right wingers after them, right? So, and the thing for me is, I like you said, it's like we're, we're going full circle. Like I, I've said it before, the civil rights era never really ended because black people have always been fighting for civil rights, for equality, for women have been women have been fighting for representation at work. Women, they're like only recently the Crown Act passed, right? So like the civil rights era never ended, but it's like certain things are coming back around. And I thinking about Mike and Debbie, I can't imagine what they must think going into prison in that situation and coming back out. In the, I think um Debbie came out in twenty. 17 and Mike came out at the beginning of 2018 and then like to see all of that coming happening again like it never changed I can't imagine what ran through the what what was running through their heads now where they're thinking wow where it's just like yeah you gotta wonder if they I I mean I don't think they ever think what they did didn't mean anything Hmm. or wasn't for a good reason but I mean I don't know how you don't get a little bit beat down by that and um I look at what people younger than me are doing and uh, that's what makes me feel hopeful. And I think it's really smart. I mean, I don't think it's a safe way to organize to have these figureheads anymore. Like that doesn't make sense with all the surveillance going on. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so, I mean, I think what was great about move is the collectiveness of it. I mean, you know, they all took the same last name there. They all lived in a community and for a while, you know, it was just about uh, these these charismatic figures that could speak for people. But I think what the movements are actually going back to now, what it seems like is this more 
horizontal, non-hierarchical, like collective movements. That's not just about the political action, but about, you know, how do you take care of yourself? How do you take care of other people in your community? Like, are you loving the other people in your community outside of the political work you're doing? And that's really, I feel like that's, not new, but it's coming back. It's really, it's really beautiful to see. Yeah. If anything, I think like the thought just occurred to me. If anything, Twitter is the main figurehead because Twitter, yeah. <laughs> because Twitter is the tool that we all use to speak for for um to speak up and to and to talk about what's going on, and um and I think that's where we can use we we are using technology to our advantage, but it's also always being used against our our um against us too because like uh, I watched the MLK slash fbi film today and like i've always i've always i've known about coental pro and like how that was um instrumental in um martin luther king jr's assassination as well also as malcolm x and other um and other political figures and so that's what they that's what they accomplished with just wiretapping with just yeah. the bare minimum of um technology had no but now you have things like our very same Twitter and and Instagram and all of these different technologies and, and cam- cameras and drones and we are in way more danger now than we were before and it's like um for for a lot of the protests people were like when it but in June when the um the the protests really started to kickstart people were like posting videos and everything and then like people realized okay wait people are going missing. Uh-huh. And then they were like, we have to be more cautious. Don't show faces. Because they were, like police were literally turning up at people's door saying, yeah. oh, we have evidence of you being at this march. And it was like, how do you know? And it's like, they got, they, they use social media to track people yeah. down. So it's like, again, like as you said, it's more dangerous now for, for us now than it was before. And while Twitter is the tool that we can use to 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 be our figurehead and to be our, 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 our as you could say, our pulpit and our... um our bullhorn to, 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 to speak up about, about things that are happening. We also have to be more wary, but then that's also kind of what they want to, cause they want to use our affair against us. And uh, which is, which is what happens in the film because, um, one thing about the move members that were, I think was extremely admirable is how anytime they were, anytime they were questioned, they would say John Africa and they would uh-huh. say, <laughs> they would they would use a phrase, um, whatever's necessary, whatever's right. And, and like, I love how they refuse to be um, bossed into a corner with regards to how questions were asked and how they answer questions. They never allow people to put words into their mouths and they were, and they would, and I thought that, and I thought that was extremely admirable. And, and I just, I, I don't know. I, it was, I, I love how um, Tommy Oliver did the documentary in the fact that he let them speak for themselves um, because they couldn't speak for themselves because they were in prison, so he let their words from the footage speak for themselves. And and also with Mike, with Mike Junior, he had this. He he has this massive room with all of this information that he's gathered. And like yes, this was all. This is information he was using specifically to look for, as he said, the needle in a haystack that could prove his parents' innocence and have them released. But I just kept thinking, imagine the amount of information for other stuff that he has in that room and it was like i can't imagine like having to sift through all of that and then like seeing something else that's a clue to some to something else yeah i mean oliver it's a really informative documentary you learn a lot but it also feels really intimate somehow like it, it does like you see documentaries sometimes and they're they're talking head documentaries and there's archival footage and it feels it can feel really clinical sometimes because people are just sitting there talking but sometimes 
somehow he gets you right in there and it's really immersive. You feel for Mike Africa Jr. You feel like the passion and what he's been doing and, and his commitment. And then he goes to the community members' houses. So you're seeing people talk on their couch mm. about what happened. You know, you're, yeah, I mean, it's like you, you know, you're right in there with the, with these people that were involved in it. And it feels really warm, even though what you're watching is, you know, horrific and, and there's violent stuff. Um, but it, he really transport you, transports you back to that time. Mm. So you get like a really cohesive view of like the social, the economic, the racial, the political kind of landscape. And I mean, the music and, and how he structures it is really great too. And then the ending, you know, huh. it would have been worth it without the ending. But I mean, the ending, I was crying. <laughs> yeah, the ending with, with the parents, like where he just shows them the the pictures of them together, and like you mentioned, it was really intimate. And so one of the things that stood out for me is, like, as you, you said, like where he where he filmed the interviews. So like for especially for a lot of the the black people that were interviewed, which were members of Move, he filmed them in their homes in spaces where they're they're surrounded by black art or black uh-huh. um black you know black art black newspapers. Like one of the ladies um. If they, I can't remember which one she was, but she was one that was hosting the meeting, one of the meetings at the church. And behind her, there's black and white photos of the move members, uh-huh. right? And then, at the, and then for the other, another lady, she's in her kitchen and she's surrounded by all of these pictures, and she has things there where she could just grab and she's like, "Oh wait, let me go look for this picture," and it's like right there. Uh-huh. And it's like these are people who are familiar with their surroundings and they're familiar with their history. Whereas, like for the people, like the the prosecutor and the um, the the cops that he interviewed, their setup to me was more clinical. Yeah. Right. And 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 I'm like to me that showed to me I am that's intentional. It has to be because it shows because I think their setup reflected the way they answered questions too. Because like for the cops and stuff like they were trying to paint themselves as victims and they were and you can tell these were answers that they thought about carefully because they're like let me not reveal too much right. information to prove that we were wrong but like the way they're answering you could tell like yeah you guys know you you fell apart and <laughs> yeah. Yeah. i remember that one that one police officer who almost self-incriminated um was in that it was a stark white room like mm. it looked like an interrogation room yeah where he was at while he was also almost telling on himself and i know i think it totally had to be um intentional because I mean, it reminded me of Errol Morris and some of his tactics in the thin blue line Mm. and how he got, you know, the way he shot um, the man who ended up, you know, being guilty. So it it seemed by the end of the film versus the guy who was incriminated but ended up uh, not doing it. It, I mean, he definitely, the visuals matched (laughs) the guilt or innocence of the people. So I think Tommy Oliver definitely knew what he was doing. And he, I mean, he has just been acclaimed recently because he um, was going around to the Black Lives Mm -hmm. Matter protest and then doing all the photography for them. And I think he was featured in Time or something and maybe Life magazine who was who was showing off his photography as being kind of like the documenter, the recorder of the Black Lives Matter movement in several different cities. And so and his, his photographs are really vibrant and passionate. And I, I feel it really carries over to this film. It, it does. And it's, and like, as you said, is is if anything, the film carries over into that because like he, this film was done before 
all of this started right so like again like i just kept like you can't help but draw parallel parallels to the film and to what's happening now and then you think this this film was probably done two years ago at uh-huh. least right and you're just thinking wow imagine being a filmmaker because that thought just kept occurring to me imagine sitting down preparing these interviews compiling all this information mike is sharing his story his parents are finally home then boom you have this um this um this flashpoint moment happening like he's they're watching history happen again and this time they're taking part in it like where we would have had this like the footage for move or for um or for like the Montgomery bus um, bus boycott and all this stuff, we're we're accustomed to seeing footage of that happening in, on TV in a film or whatever in a documentary. But then like you're being a part of history now, and you or your story is a part of this story. And as a filmmaker, like he's in it, yeah, right. And like, that just kept occurring to me because I was like, this 2020 has been such a strange year, and it's I think is it's been. Great is some aspects in the fact that like it's allowing people to finally tell that people are feeling more I think more courageous to tell their stories and everything, but it's also not so good not only because of the the pandemic but also because it's like you feel like the world is on fire <laughs> literally <laughs> and, and it is it literally is <laughs> right and it's like we couldn't imagine and it's just like you like like you know that meme going that was going around like what where were you on January twenty in January of twenty twenty and you were and you like you thought that everything was all good. And I had, I attended Sundance and I would have never, could have never imagined that we'd be in the moment that we're in now, right? And it's just like, life is so strange. I I mean, I, I feel like we've been telling ourselves for the past three or four years, like, oh, this next year is going to be better. And every year, like, nope, not yet. But I definitely, I mean, you can't allow yourself to imagine how bad things have mm. gotten particularly I mean, my family's in the States and I grew up in the States and it's really shocking. Uh, it's just, it's open season on, on people without any, without any recourse. It's open season on, on black Americans and um, talking to my parents who lived through the, the like first civil rights movement. They say it's as bad as it was in the seventies, um, which is, which is terrible, but there are people fighting against it. But I think when we see films like MLK, FBI and, both of those are talking about things in the past. I mean, One Night in Miami is like kind of like a speculative, what if this happened? Mm-hmm. But the fact that it still feels completely modern, like these same dilemmas, these same uh, like racial dynamics, even between other even between other Blacks, you know, like mm-hmm. what, there's dynamics between us too and dynamics between diasporas um, and differences in how we choose to resist. Um, the fact that this all still feels so current is really interesting to me and it's it's um you you say that but i was thinking this today because i was trying to select which three films i was going to watch today so today i watched as i mentioned mlk fbi um i have to watch concrete cowboy later and then the next film i'm going to watch is um i i don't want to say the day will come it's a chinese it's a chinese film about this reporter and but the best then, is yet to come. The best is yet to come. Yeah. But then you you say what you just said, and I've been thinking like when you because you mentioned at the beginning like when you like when you guys were selecting the films and stuff like there is this overarching relationship between all of them, and when you look at MLK FBI, forty years a prisoner, one night in Miami, there is a theme, mm-hmm. 
uh-huh. right? And it, and like and then when you're looking at what's happening now, a lot of those three films and some of the other ones which I haven't even had a chance to see do relate to what's happening now. And yeah. it's kind of like how our past reflects our future. But then I I, I just th- thought about the films that I I um I've seen so far and the ones that um very that that I think are my favorites. Um, that includes um, one in Miami, but also um uh under the open sky by me when nishikawa and also who which is a japanese film but then also an old lady which is a korean film but those two those two films kind of tight have a are kind of thematically linked to what's going on now and then even if you look at the the absolutely bonkers and chaotic film um get the hell out (laughs) um they kind of are similar because they're talking about how society breaks down right how politics plays a part in how in society breaking up and i was just thinking wow you know a lot of the films that i personally have seen unintentionally are related have similar themes and deal kind of like what is going on and and dealing with what's happening now um because i um, get the hell out talks about industrial um pollution well like you know like governments and politicians um, polluting um, the country and like you know the um, the environment because they only care about greed and then you look at in California and like the world is on fire like skies are red in Oregon <laughs> and those kind of places and you have in the right now in the Atlantic in the Atlantic Ocean there's eight t- tropical storms heading yeah. towards Caribbean and I think and I'm like wow like that's kind of what they were talking about and get the hell so it's just like the way how that's and I think that's one of the reasons I love film so much is how we, I think film helps us understand our reality better, but it also helps us to voice um, the things that we were that we think, but we're not, but we don't, that, but we we aren't able to get on. Then we watch a film and then we're like, okay, wait, I can connect the dots, and this thing that's been yeah. bothering me is is I'm seeing it reflecting on screen. Yeah, and I mean, films. I, I feel like films really tap into our collective subconscious too, because there's also a film called new order by Michelle Franco, which is very much about like the upheaval of a very classed system. Um, and like the, you know, a coup basically like mm-hmm. a popular coup happening where people just, uh, riot and, and actually, you know, turn it upside down. And, you know, it, it, it resonates through a lot of those films and these films were started two years ago. So people didn't, I mean, there must be some type of zeitgeist happening where artists, really pick up on things much sooner than the, than the rest of us mm-hmm. when it comes to feeling like this is how this is going to play out, you know, down the line in the future, like these small choices we're making. It's, it's really fascinating how it happens. Yeah. And you, you mentioned that, but then again, again, more films that I've seen, like that my other two other, two of my other favorites were, um, uh, Inconvenient Indian by, mm-hmm. um, Michelle Latimer. Um, which is about how Native Americans, oh, sorry, no, First Nations and Native Americans people are portrayed in media with regards to their history and how white people view them in society. And then also there is, there was Beans by Tracy Dare, which talks about, you know, the, uh, I can't remember the exact term for it, but it was this, um, this, um, the Oka um, crisis, the Oka crisis yeah. in uh, Montreal. And again, that's, again, that's marginalized people fighting against the police and oppressive force to reclaim their for for land that is theirs and they're like they're like this is our land we have a right to protect it and then i watched and i kept thinking of no dapple and 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 then also what's going on here in canada again with the pipeline being um 
stretched across like northern Canada and it's like well yep the more as you know and I just kept thinking the more things change the more they stay the same yeah and the wild the wild thing is we didn't plan it that way like like we didn't plan that thematic through line Mm. but the truth was a lot of our submissions I mean, I would say not a majority, but maybe like half of our submissions already had those themes in them, you know? So it wasn't just that we picked these films. It was like, these were the films that people were making Mm. um, because all of this was in our pool of things to choose from. And it was more than like, more of those than the coming of age stories and like the little love stories. I mean, we get those too, but uh, a lot of them were about social political upheaval this year. Yeah, and I, do you think that's because, like, as filmmakers, and not even just as filmmakers, just as people, they were like, we are in a moment in history where shit is about to go down, and we have to get these stories told before we're not able to. Because that's the kind of impression that I was getting. Because sometimes when I watch films, I always feel like filmmakers, they're, they're, they know they're running out of time. And and that's when I was watching all of these films. And, and I remember just um, last year. So last year... For most of the end of last year, I I had this sense of foreboding. Like my sister asked me, she was like, "What's wrong with you?" And I, cause she, and I was like, "I don't know. I feel like time is running out. I feel like I have to get these things done because like I just felt this urge that things had to be done because something was something fundamentally was going to change." And when I was watching these films the last five days, I had the same thought again. Like something, I don't know if it's good or bad, but something is coming and something is and something is going to change. And like I I can't imagine what what filmmakers are going to what filmmaking is going to be like in the future like we talked about these people wanting to make film about love in the time of covid i'm not talking about those films i'm talking (laughs) i'm talking about films that really get into the psyche of society and like how what everything that's going on is again going to affect marginalized communities because once again women of color and particularly black and indigenous women and women brown women are usually are the ones who always suffer when when these kind of situations happen and i just like i can't imagine what things are going to be like six at, by the end of the year, let alone next year. Like I hope I'm in South Korea next year at the beginning, but I'm like the way how things are going. Like I have no idea. I, let's just hope everybody starts making films about really cute things and, uh, <laughs> and happy futures and utopian governments. Maybe we can speak it into existence mm. uh, and film it into existence for next year but do you think that's really going to happen because like film has always been kind of like um film has always been kind of like what's the word i'm looking for it's not premonition um prescient prescient where like because when we look at films like terminator Uh and total recall or even um uh that's timo spielberg film minority report yeah. And when you look at those kind of films and you, and then you combine it with like like documentaries like 40, uh, 40 Years of a Prisoner and you, you realize that it's almost like all of these things are coalescing. Like we always talk like because like now we talk about, you know, like the mechanized machines like dogs and AI and <laughs> we're like, is no one listening? <laughs> You've all Did been nobody watch that Black Mirror episode <laughs> and they decided to make it anyway. Yeah, no one. <laughs> Every time I see some new, like, Android AI technology, I'm like, but why? <laughs> this could go wrong so easily. There's so many ways. There's so many ways. And it's usually always white people in charge. I'm like, you see white people, y'all keep doing this, y'all keep doing these things. Like, so just because you can doesn't mean yeah. you should. Exactly. And I think one of the, I think what films did predict 
um, is that we assumed for a long time that technology was neutral. It's like, oh, we're going to get to this technological place and it's going to be like, you know, we're going to be able to do merit-based things and it won't be discriminatory or biased because it'll be like a computer. But actually, (laughs) because biased people are making these Mm -hmm. programs and this technology, the technology is also biased. And so I feel like films were kind of hinting at that um, way before, you know, it was like we went through this kind of utopian technological stuff like Star Trek, the original Star Trek. And then it got darker and darker when people started to realize, well, people are making these things. So it's going to be flawed in the ways that people are. And now we're there. And now we're looking at facial facial recognition technology, cars that drive, but don't recognize, you know, brown faces uh, enough to stop, you know, so... Yeah, because like, we, we, we thought that we'd have the cool and cute stuff, you know, like our own hoverboards. We thought, yeah. we, we thought we'd have our little own spaceships, like the Jetsons, that it was all gotten our own personal um, major domo, our mechanical major domers and maze and whatever. No, instead we got the drones uh-huh. and we got the we got the AI that's probably going to like, what's her, what's the one? Is it Sophia that's going to be looking to, <laughs> to kill us? And you have like Amazon using like their, um, their devices to spy on people. And I'm yeah. like, yeah, no, we never got any of the cute tech, the cute technology. We got the the the, the dangerous kind. I'm still mad about not getting the hoverboard. I, so, I felt like know. that was a promise that Back to the Future made, and we we haven't. Nobody's delivered on that. No promise. one. And even if they have, it's <laughs> going to be. And even if they have, it's not going to be for everyone. It's going to be for the. It's going to be priced out of our our um. It's going to be priced out of a way that no no one but the few, and the very elect can afford it, which is you know. That's true. Just Elon Musk oh, and his friends. And Jeff, <laughs> and Jeff Bezos. Yeah. I, I can't imagine. Uh, um, okay. So again, I was so just, so before we wrap up, are there any films that coming out that you, that you would recommend? So like one of the films I was really looking forward to was bruised by Halle Berry, yeah. but that got snatched up by Netflix. So I wasn't able to screen it. Um, so are there any films that you've seen that you would recommend and, so, like, give me your, apart from 40 Years of Virgin and Pieces of a Woman, what are your three other favorite films and why? Uh, I was really impressed by Bruised. Um, Halle Berry is somebody that I've been a fan of for a really long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's a really solid director. And her performance is completely explosive in this film. And she really gets into the meat of what it's like to be this kind of forgotten woman who's, you know, working class, who's had to fight her way through everything um, and has had a lot of trauma happen to her. And I was unexpectedly moved by that film. And, you know, that film showed up in our, in our general submissions pool. So, you know, like we were, we were super excited to see it. Um, And when we saw that it was good, we were even more um, excited to support her as a, as a director. Um, the other films, I mean, I, MLK, FBI, I saw I, that one. Um, Concrete, Concrete Cowboy, I liked quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And I did not know very much about the Fletcher Street Urban Writing Club. Mm-hmm. So um, that's a fascinating history. And that's something that now I'm really motivated to try to, to, try to save. Um, yeah, I think those were... Those were the films I really, really liked. Uh, you already said Under the Open Sky, and I'm a huge fan of Miwa Nishikawa and Koji Yakusho, So, and what she's saying about it being hard for prisoners to 
come back into society in any meaningful way is so important. Um, so that would be the other one. Mm, yeah, that film was the ending hurt, but I understood. I understood why it happened, but that hurt me. I was like, oh, but yeah, yeah. but that that one to me, I saw that film as not only talking about how hard it is for ex-cons to transition into society, but how it actually, they're transitioning and they're, the difficulties that they have transitioning not necessarily doesn't always have to do with their violent past, but it has to do with how society makes being a better person more difficult because, like, for, for him, he wanted to be, like, his his natural thing is, a prote- I, I saw him as someone who's a natural protector, like he, like the reason he ended up in prison is because of what happened to his wife, and then he comes out and he's told that speaking up for people is bad and defending them is bad and to keep his head down and if he wants to make it and if he wants to be there for the people his friends and families he has to he has to like avoid confrontation and that hurt me when I heard that because I'm like I'm I'm kind of the same way like my mom would always say to, I always talk to people fire rage. Um, <laughs> so like, I'm like if somebody was to tell me like actually I used to I was told that because I would always tell me stop trying to get people business and like I'm like nah if I see somebody getting bullied I'm gonna get I'm gonna like say something so like it was for him it was a similar thing and then it's just like imagine going to being told to go to prison like you like and then you come out and like society is telling you oh you basically have to be this cold-hearted person to make it and i'm like it's like he's getting these mixed messages and so i that's that's how i saw the film and it was just like that one hurt that one hurt me a lot it was like no it was it was sad but i i also want to shout out two short films because there's there's a film called uh black bodies by kelly fife marshall Mm -hmm. um and that is a really really powerful film that i think everybody could could see should see um we definitely got it right this year with that, that film and the other one is Sinking Ship by Sasha Lee Henry, which is, I just saw yesterday, so smart and so good. It's like, if you've ever seen a Hong Sang Soo film, I'm not comparing it because she's she's her own genius. I don't want to yeah, <laughs> make yeah. a comparison, but the same like, you know, tense relationship, incisive um, writing about those dynamics. It's just, it's really precise and I, and I really loved it. Mm, so. I'm going to try to check those out. Hopefully they're not expired yet because that's been my biggest struggle with this virtual <laughs> um, screening is you got two days and you see literally see the clock ticking down like it expires at 11.01. Not 11 o'clock. 11.01. You got that one minute <laughs> to catch your film. But I'm going to try to catch those. Um, so again, Robin, thank you so much for chatting with me about 40 Years a Prisoner and about, you know, filmmaking and activism and all of this. And is there anything you would like to say before we close out? Like any anything you want to plug, any announcements you want to make? Um, like you can mention also your, your Twitter handle and your Instagram handle. I just want to say, you know, if, if you're watching TIFF movies this year, don't forget about, you know, voting for the People's Choice Award. It's really important for us to recognize great filmmaking and, and movies when we see them. But then also just that I'm, I'm really honored to be part of this festival this year and that we still get to present movies to people mm. and, and arts to, to people in, at this time. So just thank you, Carolyn, and thank everybody else who's kind of supporting cinema even now. So mm. Thank you. Thank you for speaking with me, Robin. And everyone, please stay safe. Wear a mask and wash your hands. And (laughs) so this will be a series that I'll be doing for as part of my TIFF coverage. And um, so you can follow the hashtag on Twitter at SHWHTIFF20. And you can also follow the official TIFF um, account, which is TIFF underscore net. 
And you can also look up for any for reviews and pod, and the podcast episodes on butwhythepodcast.com. It will be under S- the So Here's What Happened podcast and also Carolyn Talks. So um, that's it, everyone. So stay safe. Bye. And then thank I will you. recording there. And thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I, I, I love talking about it. I have to go like directly into this class visit now. But no. Oh, I oh, thought you said it was starting. Up. Wasn't it starting at 7? I'm so sorry. No, no, it's okay. It's starting at 6. He, he actually told me the wrong time. It's starting at 6. Mm-hmm. But yeah.